Mark chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of their heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried, You are the Son of God! And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boerges, that is, the son of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, and Simon, the Canaanian, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. So we're stopping. Uh, Let's ask God's blessing upon his word. Triune God, we yet again come to you here. And we ask that you would speak and that we would listen. You have already spoken in the reading of your word. Oh God, would you now speak in the preaching that we might hear from heaven. Give life. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen. 
Some of you may have heard the story of Orana Cunningham. I'm probably mispronouncing her first name, and I'm sorry. Uh, Orana Cunningham uh, is in the news right now because in 2014 she contracted a somewhat rare form of cancer. And uh, through consultation with her doctors, it was determined that she needed a very specialized protein or proton beam radiation. It's very kind of unique, very expensive uh, type of radiation where they kind of blast it through this very kind of specialized thing. And so uh, Orana gets ready to have her radiation, at which point her insurance company denies coverage. And the doctors are like, this is good, and it's helpful, and it's right, and it will be good for her. And she said, it's good, and it's right, and it should be helpful for me, although I don't particularly know. And the insurance company said, it's not good, it's not right, and it's not going to happen. And Orana died. 2014, she died at 54 of cancer. At which point her family kind of sniffed out that something was wrong and sued Aetna. And it's been in the courts. It was actually just concluded this last week where the jury awarded her family $25 million because they found that Aetna had not done its due diligence in determining what was good for Ms. Cunningham. But it's interesting because the entire case is really a conversation in who knows what's best for you. I mean, they always tell you in medicine, you know your own body, you know it best. <laughs> no, that's not actually true. <laughs> it's really not. In many cases, the doctors know it better than you, but the doctors aren't the ones who get to control the money. They don't have the purse strings, and it makes sense because um, suddenly everybody might need these ultra-expensive treatments because the doctors are the ones determining But instead, here you had conflict of interest between uh, the insurance company, which doesn't want to pay, conflict of interest with the doctors who say that she desperately needs this ridiculously expensive procedure, and Miss Cunningham gets caught in the middle. And it begs the question, who gets to determine what's good for you? In fact, actually, let's back it up and not even say who determines. Let's just say who knows. (laughs) Who knows What's best for you? Is it the insurance company? Well, probably not if you've had to interact with them at all. Is it the government? Well, certainly not. Is it the doctors? Well, maybe not. Who is the one who knows what is best for you? As we come to Mark chapter 3, part of what is being highlighted in this chapter, amongst many other things, is that Jesus knows what's best for his people. And his ministry here takes a a specific tactic in kind of highlighting that, but not maybe in the way that we would naturally guess. Jesus knows what's best for his people. We're going to kind of look at four parts to it that somewhat line up with the uh, sections in the ESV. The first one here, the man with the withered hand. Jesus enters the synagogue, kind of translate that today as he went to church like he normally did, which is fun to think about. Jesus went to church. I can't imagine him uh, and his patients listening to the sermons. 
I mean, whew, because he had to have heard some bad ones. They're talking about the Messiah and not catching that it's him right in front of them. Um, I mean, you want to talk about missing the point of a passage. I think that's probably going to qualify. And as he's walking in, a man with a withered hand walks in. And the text is not entirely clear as to what this is. Is it a man who has some sort of kind of birth defect in his arm or birth defect in his hand? We don't know. Is it a man who had some sort of, uh, of injury to his arm? We're not entirely sure. What we do know is that his hand absolutely does not work correctly. And to the point where it would have been kind of visibly incorrect. It's not right And that is kind of what sets the stage. And you think, oh, wow, here comes another confrontation. Uh, Continuing on what's happened in the previous paragraph. You see, in the previous paragraph, Mark has been telling the story, interacting with the idea of the Sabbath. Now, most of us today uh, don't think in categories of Sabbath outside of church itself. The Sabbath was a day that God had appointed one in seven That was designed for rest and worship. So that the Jews every week had one specific holiday, one holy day that was set aside to honor the Lord. It was the rhythm of their life. Six days of work, one day of rest. And in the Old Testament, that day of rest is framed out clearly and carefully. In the Ten Commandments, it's connected to the very act of creation itself. God worked for six and then finished creating and has rested since. In some way, the the Sabbath day is a reflection of his rest and a reflection of his character. It even builds to various points in uh, Israel's history. One of the great ones is where, you know, the the merchants are getting ready to come into Jerusalem on, on the Sabbath day. And you have the leader of God's people, I think it's Ezra, standing out on the gate saying, if you come in, we will kill you on the spot because we will honor the Lord on the Sabbath. Whoa. Commerce forbidden. Whoa. Big deal. A day set aside for rest and worship. And it was important. It is important, but it was particularly important in the Old Testament. And the Pharisees, in classic fashion, had taken something that was important and completely ruined it. They took a good thing and turned it into a wretched thing. And instead of saying, look, here's a day that's specifically given for rest and worship, they micromanaged it. Have you ever, any of you ever worked under a boss that micromanaged? Like crazy micromanaged, the one where it's like that, type your emails this way, please. Really? That's what the Pharisees had done with how the people of God were to rest and worship on the day, setting how many, uh, how many steps people were allowed to walk on that day. What they were allowed to do, even to the, the tiniest little minutia. And Jesus had already gone to battle with them, trying to redefine, to challenge for them what they had kind of narrowly framed it out to be. It's a day for rest and worship. But of course, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the Jews, couldn't stand for Jesus to upset the apple cart because it would upset their religious system. It would upset their source of identity, would upset their source of meaning and upset their source of power. They couldn't stand to have their idea challenged. He's challenged it in the end of chapter two. And now in chapter three, we have it coming to a head. Well, a hand, really, I guess. 
Verse 2, kind of, you see it's told, Mark, man, Mark tells us great. It, it adds drama, right? Jesus enters the synagogue, and you get like, if it were a movie, you would see Jesus coming in from one side of the synagogue. You'd see the man with the withered hand coming in from the other side of the, you know, like some you know, meeting in the middle. And right in the background, you have all of the Pharisees sitting there watching. They watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And this is an amazing thing. Because again, remember, it's not like today where we have the most spectacular forms of medicine. I mean, the things that women and men do in medicine today is genuinely shocking. I mean, the stories we read, the things they can transplant and replace, how they can regrow parts of your body inside your body to then replace other things. I mean, it's the most amazing things where they do like skin grafts and they cut open your, your, you know, your skin right here and tuck up other skin inside it and let it grow back in. And then they take it back out and reattach it for you know, reconstruction surgery. It's absolutely amazing. Back then, they don't have any of that. Back then, if you get sick, guess what happens? You die. Well, if you get really sick, if you get slightly sick, you just stay weak until you die. And a man with a withered hand is a useless man. It's a man who can't work very well. I mean, if you're thinking about a world that exists mostly based on manual labor and he only has one hand, that's just really unhelpful. I mean, can you imagine trying to build stuff with an arm that doesn't work? And so this man is a man that would be pitied. He would be most likely condemned to being a beggar. Jewish, um, uh, Jewish lore uh, has him actually uh, marked out as like a, um, a stonemason, which we think, oh, that's a, a no, like a, a favorable job. No, he was the lowest of manual labor. Like he was the guy who just carried heavy things all day long every day if he could. A terrible life. But yet the intriguing thing is, as Jesus comes up to meet the man who's broken and battered, the man who's a wreck and honestly has zero opportunity to improve his condition. You have in the background the Pharisees waiting so they can accuse Jesus. I don't know which is more shocking. That they're standing there waiting to accuse Jesus, or even as his enemies, they're waiting, expecting a miracle. (laughs) They're standing there going, well, of course Jesus is going to heal the man. I mean, no one else in the entire world possibly can. He has a hand that's completely useless. Modern medicine has no opportunity to fix. Of course Jesus is going to heal him, and we need that to happen so we can accuse him. Guys, what are you doing? (laughs) So Jesus says to the man, you get it like, come here. And they meet in the middle. And Jesus pauses and he looks at the Pharisees. He looks at the Jewish religious leaders and asks them a question. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? And this is actually for them an unbelievably ethically complicated ethical question. Because they framed out what can be done on the Sabbath so narrowly that they had thousands of good things that you weren't allowed to do at all on the Sabbath. Things that would have been righteous and holy on other days, you can't do then. But then he throws in this great complication of, well, to do harm or to kill it. Jesus, what are you asking? 
And part of it is his question cuts through all of their human regulations to the heart of the question. Scribes and Pharisees, is it okay to be righteous on the Sabbath or unrighteous? It's not about your regulations. It's not about your etiquette. It's not about all of your kind of rules and kind of religious mumbo-jumbo. Is it okay to be righteous? And of course, what's their response? They understand the heart of his question. They can't answer it. Because in order to say anything is to condemn themselves. So they stay silent. And Mark here, an amazing insight into the character and person of the Lord Jesus. And Jesus looks around at them with anger. Being reminded, not all anger is sinful anger. Now, when it's just about how you were wronged, most of the time it is. But here, Jesus is angry with them and at the same time grieved because he sees exactly what's happening, that their hearts are so hard. Again, it's just shocking. They're waiting for a miracle so they can pronounce judgment on the Lord God. A miracle! So Jesus says, stretch out your hand, and the man reaches out, and when he does, instantaneously and miraculously, it's fully restored. And again, it's so fully restored that people could see it. It wasn't like one of those things where that trick finger that had arthritis that wouldn't move exactly correctly suddenly moves correctly. The hand that was hideous is made whole instantaneously. And you get to see the heart of the Pharisees played out. Verse 6, they immediately leave. It's like they leave in a huff in the middle of church. I mean, it's the equivalent of like Jesus like right now standing up and healing somebody and people getting so angry that he did it that they go running out the back right away. They go to his enemies and they begin to have counsel on how to destroy him, which is particularly ironic because of the question he just asked them, isn't it? Guys, what is, it, what is it okay to do on the Sabbath? Is it okay to be righteous? Is it okay to do harm or to kill? And then what's the end of this little paragraph? Jesus has healed a man on the Sabbath and continues in worship. But these men, so angry at their petty little rules being broken, they're out on the Sabbath planning the destruction of Christ. Because you see, Jesus understands what's actually good for people. He understands what's actually helpful for people. He understands what's actually right for people. And you know why? Two reasons. Because he is a person and because he made all persons. It's not like when he gives his law to us, he gives his word to us. It's not like it's out of ignorance. It's not like a a man writing the, the, the comprehensive tome on how to be a teenage girl successfully. I mean, how did you write that? I don't know how to write that. I don't, teenage girls are a mystery. They're lovely and wonderful and curious and ununderstandable <laughs> for a grown man. Jesus, on the other hand, speaks of people knowing exactly who they are, for he is a person and he has made all persons. John 1 explains him as the agent of creation. When the Father speaks, 
to create. He is speaking the word. He is speaking the Son. The Son is the agent of creation. And his ministry is then structured from this knowledge and in a way that would then benefit people in the fullness and the reality and the depth of what they actually need. This is the part that particularly, again, I think the Sabbath is such an interesting illustration because still today people, even inside the church, are like, look, I've got a better idea than Jesus did. He said it was a day for righteousness, a day for holiness, and a day for rest, but I still have a better idea than he does. Okay. Christ understands what's good for people. His ministry is structured from that basic presupposition. He's giving goodness and giving good things to his people. All right, and it continues from there. And this Mark tells the stories. Uh, Mark has a, a pattern for how he likes to tell stories. He likes to tell a story about Jesus interacting with people inside a building and then how Jesus gets away from the crowd and goes out away and gets out into the wilderness. That's his pattern for how he likes to tell. Verse 7, Jesus withdraws with his disciples to the sea. And as you might guess, a great crowd follows Well, no joke. I mean, when sickness was death in those days, where I would have been considered a fairly old man, where the flu would have wiped out everyone, well, if you got a guy who can heal anything, much less like withered hands and all kinds of things, well, yeah. Well, I mean, it's worth checking it out. I mean, how many of those lingering aches and pains that you have would you be like, well, I mean, even if he's a wacko, would you still go check? I mean, probably, why not? You got nothing to lose because modern medicine in that day has no help to give. So the crowd follows in this massive crowd from the region, from the city, from kind of all around. And and I, I would love to have seen kind of what this picture looks like. Because the great crowd hears what he's doing and you get this idea that it's like this just constant bit of chaos around him. To the point where Jesus actually has to say at the end, guys, I need you to keep a small boat in the water for me. So if the crowd gets too out of hand, I can disappear into the boat so they can't get me. And again, pause and just think for a moment about the humility. Here, Here is the Lord of life. Second person of the Trinity in humanity, in human form, who has taken on humanity so fully, so realistically, that his human nature is actually having to plan for human weakness. Guess what? If the crowd comes to crush him, what happens to him? He dies. So he's planning, he's being wise, he's being prudent, he's being careful so that as the people come to get around him, he can still minister to them but have his safe way out. You see, this is another part, actually, I think a lot of times we forget about God. Uh, we, We understand that God is good. People will talk about that one. And I think most people today will say that God is love, even if they have no idea what that actually means, and define it in the worst way possible. They still would say that. But I don't think many Christians would say God is infinitely practical. I want to pause for a moment. Just think through that for a second. 
that God is practical. And by that I mean not to say he's not romantic or visionary or kind of far off deep thinker out in space and la-la land somewhere else. But when he gives us his word, it's within the context of real and actual implementation. It's designed to be put to use. And here you see King Jesus, the king of all of creation, actually just showing practical wisdom while he's ministering. I mean, you think about it. I just finished a series on Proverbs, probably the hardest series I've ever tried to preach, because it's all little nuggets of practical wisdom. And here, interestingly, you have Jesus doing the exact book of Proverbs, being obedient to it and fulfilling it here as he's ministering to a giant crowd. What do you do with a giant crowd? Well, you make sure you have a way out so the crowd will dissipate. Because he doesn't have riot police. He doesn't have, you know, pepper gas. He doesn't have tear gas to disperse the crowd. If it, if it goes crazy and gets chaotic, he has no way out. So here, let's have a wise and careful plan. He is the wisdom of God incarnate. And you get to see that even in how he behaves. That's important when we go to think about his commands that are given to us. His commands, again, are given out of a knowledge for us, but they're not given out of foolishness. They're given out of infinite wisdom. So it is actually important for us to think that when I don't know what to do, not what would Jesus do, but what would Jesus have me do? What, what does he command? What does he tell me is the path of life? Because he knows it. For he himself has lived it. Well, the story doesn't stop there. Casting out demons, telling them to be quiet. It's not yet his time. And he does something that I think is perhaps the most shocking. Flees out up to the mountain. Those who are reading this obviously would have known which mountain because it's the single definite article. And he calls those to him that he wishes. He calls the 12 disciples, the apostles, and does something shocking. He takes these 12 fellas and sets them aside so that, verse 14, so that they might be with them. And so that they might be sent out to preach with his authority. And that they would have the authority to cast out demons in his name. He pulls these 12 aside and makes them the new officers in the new church. Which is shocking because of who the list of names includes. It's not the list of the 12 best people In fact, actually, we know the most holy man alive at this point isn't in the list. John the Baptist, deadish, not quite yet, most likely, not in the list. This list isn't the most educated people on the planet. In fact, actually, these guys aren't educated. In fact, these guys are working class guys. In fact, these guys, we would call them bozos. (laughs) We look back through the, with the eyes of church history and look back on them with love and affection for most of them, the martyrs who died the great deaths. But Jesus does something shocking. He pulls 12 aside and sets them apart to be the foundation, the officers of his new kingdom. And you would have to go, Jesus, do you know who you're picking? I mean, 
you've done a bad job. If this guy were a general manager for a sports team, he would be fired right away. You don't pick these guys. These are the guys that go undrafted because nobody wants them. They're bad fellas. In fact, actually, one of them is going to betray you at the most crucial time and not for very much money. I mean, certainly not enough to betray the Lord of life himself. But actually, again, Jesus is again showing us he understands who people are. It's not out of ignorance that he's doing this. It's not out of a lack of knowledge, a, oops, I didn't know who these guys are or what they could do or what they would become. Instead, he's showcasing that his kingdom is designed to utilize broken vessels. His kingdom is designed to harness the weak and the weary and the poor and the needy and to use them. You see, all of this should hopefully point together, kind of coalesce into a tremendous source of encouragement for us. That God, Jesus, He is God, knows who we are, that He's designed for our good, and His commands are for our good to be used for His kingdom. You see, He's actually calling us to be obedient because he's calling us. That list of bozos includes you and me in some form or fashion to be the people that are used in his kingdom to go forth. Now, not everybody's called to preach with his authority, but at least one of us in here is right now. Not everybody in here is called to have the authority to cast out demons yet. I would contend the session has been given that. But we are all called to be active and obedient in his kingdom and to serve him and to go out even fulfilling his commands to the ends of the earth. Because his commands are transformative. This is the fun part about this list that when you first read it, it's a list of bozos and doofuses. But when you go back with the the perfect eyes of history and look back at these men, it's amazing. This is a list of some of the earliest martyrs in the church. Men who did the most spectacular and heroic acts of faith. Those who died in the most terrible and horrible ways for the name of Christ. Doing greater deeds of obedience and service than I could conceive of. And God used them. So the challenge for us. How will God use you? I mean, you know he's good. You know he's given you his commands. You know that his commands are infinitely practical. How will he use you? And the first thing I would say is this, just in quick application. One is, don't fight him in this. He always wins. Don't fight his commands. Don't fight his Ordinances don't fight his calling to serve in the kingdom. We have great stories of this, so he's going to win. We have Jonah, it's a great reminder. I could tell you my testimony later, I tried that. doesn't work. He's a bit more powerful than I am. But get on board with his calling and obey him. Delight in him. Serve him. 
Secondly, is in thinking in this category, is we must know his laws and his commands so that we may obey what they are. See, here's the trick that this opening interaction shows us is that the, the Pharisees were actually the majority opinion in this region at this time. If you picked your average religious leader off the day, they would have said Jesus was wrong and the Pharisees were right. And the only way you would know any different was if you had studied the scriptures for yourself, which is your task. So that you know what God's commands are, so you know what his word is, so that you know what his law is, so that you too may obey, so that you too may delight in King Jesus because he has called us. And then lastly and finally, to remember, the Savior who healed the withered hand didn't lose his power after the withered hand. It wasn't like it was a one-shot deal, and he's like, well, he had a good run. I mean, Jesus, I guess he used all of his healing magic right there to fix the guy's hand. No, this is the Lord of life. He is in the business of healing. He continues to heal people today. We all know stories of people and prayers are being answered, miraculously healed. One of my pastors growing up was pronounced like weeks from death with cancer. And when he went in for his final scan to basically have the doctor say goodbye, there was no cancer at all. They still have no idea what happened. We know what happened. God is still in the business of healing miraculously in response to prayer, but even more so on a daily basis. That even now, our hearts will be healed by the Lord of life. When we come to Him, when we seek Him, when we submit to Him. Let us pray, even now. God, we thank You. That King Jesus is the Lord of life. And he is still in the business of healing. We do pray for all the first responders that are going nuts out the back of the church. Now, we don't know what they need, but you do. And so we do pray for them. We ask that you would make them excellent in their labors, very effective in their work. And we too pray that you would preserve life, which you can do for you are the Lord of life. And, oh God, we ask that you would humbly, humbly we ask that you would heal us. Heal our heavy hearts, our hurting hearts. Heal us from our fears. Heal us from our sins. That we may find peace and safety and hope in you. For Christ's sake, amen.